Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 it's lifeline with craig roberts he's the host of northern california's longest running conservative talk show he's a man with a message a conservative with compassion he's lifeline's own craig roberts good afternoon northern california welcome Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We think about the Christian experience. We try to wrap our minds around what God's grace is and what that means. And, of course, we can intellectualize this. We can attribute to grace unmerited favor. We can try to think through what this means, and yet I have to be honest with you, in the hmm, 40 years, I guess now, that I've been a Christian, as much as I think about grace and appreciate grace and experience grace and have it touch my life on a day-to-day basis, there's an aspect of grace that I don't understand, and that's probably a good thing, because there are aspects about grace that goes so far beyond, I think, our ability to intellectualize it. This holy and righteous God, in front of whose eyes we have all sinned, as we're told in Romans 3 and 23, dead in our transgressions, and yet while we were sinners, while we were yet sinners, God sent his only begotten Son to die on our behalf, that through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might not only be saved and forgiven, but reconciled unto him and experience grace in our day-to-day lives. Brian Christopher has written a new book called Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, How Your Christian Life is Really Supposed to Work. Bob, by the way, is CEO of Basic Gospel and host of the Daily Call-In radio program of the same name, Basic Gospel. And Bob, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be with you. Looking forward to the time together. It's an important topic, I think, because um, believers, I think, of, of any stage in their walk with Christ need to be reminded of how incredible this grace is that God has shown toward us And the totality of what it means is we see Christ as that bridge between death and life and and what it means to be reconciled unto very God himself because of his grace for us, um, I think ought to simply leave every Christian, again, no matter what stage they're at in their walk with Christ, ought to leave every Christian absolutely with their minds blown by this. Oh, Craig, absolutely. Um, Most theologians, when they get to their later stages of life, and this has been through 2,000 years of church history, you know, when asked, you know, what is the most important subject uh, about Christianity? And they always choose the word grace. 
um, because e- even if they've been Christians for 50 years, 70 years, 80 years, they feel like they've just cr- uh, scratched the surface. And, and grace is one of these big words. I mean, Jesus Christ is full of truth and grace. Jesus Christ is grace itself in, in essence. And when you think how big Jesus is, that's when you start to get an idea of just how big this grace of God is and how powerful it is to make us alive together with Christ. So I think it's the most important subject, uh, most important word in the in the Bible, apart from Jesus Christ and, and the Word God itself. Is it a word that we need to keep coming back to again and again and again? In other words, sometimes you, you, you hear some that might suggest that this grace is a one-time experience, that God showed his grace toward mankind uh, there at Calvary. We can uh, partake of that grace in our salvation experience, and then once one, once it's done, it's done. Is, is it that way, Bob, or is it really an ongoing experience? Well, it's an ongoing experience. I say in the book, you know, once grace gets started, it never ends. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite writers is D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And oh, yes. He said this, the Christian life starts with grace, it must continue with grace, and it ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. You never can get away from it. And as soon as you start getting away from, you know, the grace grace of God, I find that's when things start to mess up. Um, I, I find that's when, you know, I get anxious, I lose peace, I've, you know, I have this restlessness inside. But every time I circle back to the grace of God and get a fresh look at what that exactly means in, in my everyday life, things start to settle down, and, and, and the peace of God that passes all understanding begins to fill up all the spaces in, in your mind. So I don't think we can ever get away from grace. I, I, I know most people and many folks um, communicate it as kind of first-grade stuff, but really it is, it is the foundation, it's the building, it's the roof, it's, it's everything about this Christian life. Your book title, uh, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, uh, might suggest that there's a simplicity to this. And I guess it's kind of interesting because it, it, it it's simple to the degree that Scripture lays it out for us, and yet there's a level at which I don't know that we can ever really fully understand grace, can we? No, I don't think we can fully under, understand it because it's, it's really the essence of who Jesus is. And so we're ever going to be growing in our knowledge of, of Christ and growing in the grace of God and learning how this grace of God applies in, in everyday life. So it's a lifelong endeavor to grow in grace. And then, uh, you know, when we go to be with the Lord, when he comes back, when we all receive these resurrected bodies, we're going to stand as as testimonies to the grace of God throughout eternity. Uh, and boy, just when you think of that, then you realize just how powerful and how wonderful this grace really is. Break it down in terms of, of understanding um what this means when we talk about grace. Um, we say unmerited favor, and uh, people might think, well, you mean like when the when the judge uh, throws out my parking ticket when I really should have gotten it anyway? Or <laughs> help us better understand that. Okay. Well, I think that's a really good question. And, uh, you know, if, if uh, you know, a judge throws out our parking ticket or 
uh, a cop decides not to give us uh, a ticket when indeed we've been speeding, that's that's uh, on the mercy side of the equation. Um, so that's withholding from us what we justly deserve. Grace is giving to us what we do not deserve. Um, so grace is this very present, active word in our lives. So all of us, when we come into this world, we're dead in trespasses and sins. So spiritual death is a big problem. We don't deserve life. There's nothing that we could do to merit life. There's nothing that we could do to bring it about for ourselves. So God, in his grace, has to reach down to us, even though we were dead, and make us alive together with Christ. So that's the first aspect of God's grace. It's uh, you know, when you read that uh, passage, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. It's, it's a gift of God, not of ourselves. Well, the whole context of that passage is going from death to life, that God makes us alive together with Christ. That's grace. He gives us what we did not deserve. And then it's this life of Christ that sustains us. So we're always in his favor. Nothing can separate us from his love. Um, by his grace, he's forgiven us of all of our sins. By his grace, he teaches us to say no to sin and to live righteous, upright lives. By this grace, he builds us up. He encourages us. He gives us a brand new identity. He helps us through trials and tribulations uh, in life, and he works within us to bring about his purposes in our day-to-day experience. So grace touches every aspect of our lives. So I, I like to say that most people think of grace as a word that covers the past, but actually it's a word that meets us at our point of need in, in the present and moves us forward. So it's a forward-moving word uh, tied to Jesus Christ, his spirit living within us. Um, that's just how wonderful it is. Bob Christopher with us tonight. We're looking at his latest book, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, how your Christian life is really supposed to work. Uh, you might be a new believer in your faith and struggling through some of these questions, and, and uh, we want to encourage you to take the opportunity to get your questions answered. Maybe you've been in the, in the faith uh, walk for a lot of years, but there's still some things that you don't quite understand. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting with Bob Christopher, the book, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, How Your Christian Life is Really Supposed to Work. Let's talk a bit about this concept that you were sharing earlier that I, I think is an amazing one, and it will help us perhaps understand a bit more about the breadth and depth of God's love for us. Um, you talked about grace and sort of the first part idea that we see it as withholding punishment. It's an idea of something that is being kept from us. So we get the speeding ticket, but the judge decides to let us go, even though he knows, we know, yes, we broke the law, yes, we are deserving of this punishment, but regardless... The judge shows his, quote-unquote, grace and keeps the punishment from us. 
But the grace of God goes so much further than that, as you were suggesting before the break, Bob, because it's not just a matter of God keeping a rightly deserved punishment from us, but then it's what he gives to us in and through that. Oh, absolutely. It is, it is Christ himself living in us. Uh, I've defined God's grace as this, God's work in Jesus Christ to make us spiritually alive and to power, empower us to live in this world as his children. So we, we can't do that on our own, and that's, that's where I missed it for so long, Craig. I, I was trying to live out the, the Christian life with the old adage, try harder. Every time I fell on my face, I'd get up and make promises to God, and, you know, I would just give it my best shot, trying as hard as I could to live the Christian life. And the harder I I tried, the tighter sin's grip became in my life. And when I finally understood the grace of God as, as being more than merely a covering for the past, that's when the Christian life started to make sense. That's when I really discovered how it was supposed to work. Jesus Christ living his life in and through us. And I think that's what much of the Christian world misses as far as the gospel message is concerned. Well, let's elaborate on this point for a moment. You, you mentioned, and I think rightfully so, the, the problematic viewpoint, which unfortunately in, in modern-day pop Christianity seems to be more and more prevalent, this idea of Christianity being a, like a self-help program or a self-improvement program. We hear this kind of nonsense preached from the pulpit of, of Joel Osteen. It sounds to me oftentimes like an Anthony Robbins seminar without walking on hot coals, and, and you have to pay, of course, <laughs> or contribute to the uh, to the offering plate at some point during the service. But it, it almost, well, it doesn't almost, it outright cheapens grace and and turns what God is meaning to be this wonderful experience of, as you suggest, not just withholding punishment, but then giving to us. It it really short circuits and robs us of the fullness of his grace when we see it as just this sort of self-help or self-improvement program. Yeah. God doesn't want to make us better. He wants to make dead people alive in Christ. I mean, our our old way of life was empty. Uh, Peter uh, really nailed it in his first letter when he said that life that was handed down to us from our moms and dads is nothing but an empty life. Uh, You can slice it every way you, you can, and it still comes up empty. So God sent Jesus to put an end to that old life and to raise us up with him so we could walk in the newness of life. And that newness of life is a life lived by grace, through faith, in Jesus. Um, And and we really have to learn to embrace that simplicity. And, And here's where the difficulty lies, Craig. Faith is a foreign concept to us until Christ comes in our lives. And then we start to discover what a life of faith is all about. So constantly from, you know, Genesis through Revelations, we see these reminders, trust the Lord, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. Those who put their confidence in the Lord, those who believe the Lord, that's the one thing that God is looking for from us, a heart that believes Him. And in that faith, 
all kinds of incredible things happen in our day-to-day lives. But why is it that so often, Bob, we wind up getting bogged down in fear and in guilt? And it, it, it becomes, I, I think, of we see this every once in a while, some of these extreme sports programs on TV. And you watch these guys go in white water rafting, and all of a sudden they're heading down, and they think they're having the grand old time, and all of a sudden the, the, the torment of the water overcomes the, the raft and overcomes them. They might find themselves suddenly out of control and running off the edge like you're about to head, you know, right over the the edge of the, I don't know, uh, Niagara Falls or something, and, and suddenly you become absolutely overwhelmed by fear and guilt, just like the guys get overwhelmed by the torrent of water when they get out of control. How, how, do, you, how do you go about extracting yourself from that when the flow of the current is so fast? Well, Craig, that's a great, uh, that's a great point, and, and boy, a beautiful an- analogy there as far as fear in our lives. Um, you know, fear has to do with punishment. That's how John connected it in his, his first letter, and he says, perfect love cast away that fear. And if we're really going to grow in grace and embrace this new life that we have in Christ, we first have to settle that forgiveness issue. We have to recognize that the blood of Jesus actually did take away our sins once and for all. Um, That is, I think, one of the most critical truths that that we need to latch onto and really take our stand upon. And that's the fact that when we receive Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins. Paul said it twice, once in his book to the Ephesians, once in his letter to Colossians, that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the question is, are you in Christ? And if you answer yes, then you can ask, well, what do you have according to these passages? Well, it says redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now the question that follows that is, do you really believe it? Do you really believe that right now, at this very moment, you have forgiveness of sins? And that becomes the real issue. If I struggle right there, that's when fear can take hold of my life. And we're going to pause on that point. When we come back, I want you to share with our listeners the uh, uh, Binaka story. I think it'll, it'll paint a nice picture that will ideally illustrate the challenge here, particularly in that sense where sometimes we struggle with the notion that his grace is insufficient for us because we see ourselves as being unworthy and unlovable. And there's nothing worse when we end up getting caught. We'll come back to more of the conversation with Bob Christopher as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Simple Gospels, Simply Grace. Bob Christopher, my guest on this segment of Lifeline. And uh, Bob, as we talk about the struggles that we often have with this notion of uh, feeling unworthy, unlovable, sometimes uh, just feeling uncomfortable with the fact that we feel this sense of fear and guilt, uh, you've got a great story in the book about uh, your experience as a young man uh, with um, Binaka, which I have to be honest with you, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, I remember that. didn't even realize they still made it. <laughs> but tell us a bit about that story. I think it, it ideally helps illustrate this point. Well, well, 
Craig, it, it was uh, an experience in seventh or eighth grade. I got involved in a shoplifting gang, and we would go into drugstores, and, and we would just steal things, things that we didn't need. And one of those things that we stole quite often uh, was this little breath freshener spray called Banaka. Well, one night, uh, Friday night, I spent the night with my friend David, and we went out and went to one of those stores, and we stole some Banaka, and we stole a lock. Why? It just for the challenge of it, I guess. And uh, so we came back home, and you know, I went home the next day, and as as things would have it, David's mom went into his room and started cleaning up, and he and and she found the lock, and she asked David, uh, "Where'd you get this?" And uh, he said, "Well, we stole it." And you know, he just he just he just caved like any person would, and uh, you know, as moms do. Um, you know, she dug a little deeper, and, and David told the whole story about, you know, Bob actually stole it, and we got Banaka, too. And so she, uh, you know, tried to figure out what to do, and then she picked up the phone and called my mom. And uh, that next Monday, I was delivering papers. Uh, I had skipped out on my band band rehearsal. I was a truant, so, you know, I'm a thief and a truant. And uh you know, mom's not real pleased with me. And uh, she says, get in the car. And I'm like, no, it's a beautiful day. And finally she says, Banaka. And I was just done. I unraveled <laughs> right then and there and knew I had been caught. And, you know, I could just imagine the punishment that was coming my way. And uh, mom and dad decided they were going to take me back to every store that I had stolen something from. And I was going to get in front of the manager and confess what I had done, and they were going to leave my punishment in these managers' hands. And fortunately for me, they were lenient and just required that I pay back, uh, pay them the money for the things that I, I stole, which I did. Um, but that didn't relieve my guilt because I knew, you know, my sin held something with God. And at that point, I just walked on eggshells, wondering what God was going to do with me. I knew punishment was just around the corner. And that fear just overcame me in such a way that every time I sinned, I felt Jesus left me. And so I had this formula. I'd confess. I would, would, would ask God to forgive. And then I would ask Christ to come back in my life. And I probably prayed 500 different times during my teenage years for Jesus to come back and live in my life because I didn't know what he had actually accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. And finally, I went to a Bible study, and the teacher started explaining Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead and your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together with Christ. He forgave all your sins. And that forgiveness just poured over me, just washed over me, and finally I rested in the finished work of Jesus. And that fear of punishment went away because I knew Jesus had taken my punishment for me. And in exchange for that, he gave me his righteousness. That's a pretty good deal. That's what grace is all about, God giving to us what we do not deserve. But because he loves us so much, he was willing to send Jesus to take our punishment for us so that we could stand in his presence as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. 
Let's get to some calls. We're going to head over to uh, Lee in Palo Alto. Lee, come on in with your comment or question for Bob Christopher. Oh, that Banaka story was wonderful. I think uh, probably a lot of people could identify with it. I sure could. I remember beating myself up for years. But one thing that I wanted to ask, and I don't know how to ask it without sounding kind of like uh, expecting too much, um, or or putting a demand on God, which would be like a sin in of itself. But my question would be, when you know you're forgiven, when you know that it's finished, how do you um, somehow experience God's grace? Not, not like the everyday grace, where we have our health, we have the sun, we have our needs and whatever, but God's unmerited favor on a day-to-day basis with him actually walking with us. Um, I, I don't know if I ask that right. I just, I'm yeah. not talking well, I think about I, I'm, I'm following what you're saying there, uh, Lee, as, as far as how we experience the grace of God. I, I think the first way we experience it is, is, is by resting in his finished work. You know, mo- most of us are, are tense inside, we're anxious inside, because we're not sure if God really loves us or not, or if God has forgiven us or not. And when we finally come to that point and recognize that the work has been finished, we experience this sense of rest uh, inside of us. So that's the first way we experience it. And then we experience it... Um, by the Word of God becoming strong in our lives and, and us learning to say no to the temptations uh, of, of this world and the temptations of sin. We recognize that what the world has to offer is just empty. And so I think we see a, a sense of victory in our lives as far as the world is concerned. And then I think the third way that we experience the grace of God is is by really getting to know the heart of the Father and learning to see the world through His eyes and people through His eyes. And we get so caught up on you know, in morality and trying to make the world a better place, but God sees people's hearts, and He and He sees people in one of two ways: you either belong to Him, or you're still lost and dead in sin. And when we see it from God's perspective, then our hearts start to melt, and we want to reach out with that gospel message. So the the grace just gives us, um, I, I think, deeper insight into the very heart uh, of of God the Father and what His love is all about for this world and the people that we shoulder uh, with every single day of our lives. Does that help, Lee? Yeah, it does. It helps greatly. I, I remember in the Old Testament where you had these people that poured out their hearts to God, like Hannah, who couldn't have the child, and, and when she was in the temple with Eli, and, and she just poured out her heart, and, and God gave her the grace of answering that prayer. And I think the third one, because I, I know in my case, I, I know I'm saved, and I'm in the Bible often and around other believers, but I want to see the, the, the Holy Spirit-type, um, uh, how could I put it, like answer to prayer more than just in, in our area. Maybe it's just this area. It seems like there's a lot of Christians, but we're kind of impotent. Well, I think you're, I think you're right, because... Um 
you know, our greatest asset as far as believers are concerned is, is a knowledge of God. We really know what God is like because Jesus Christ has, has made that known to us. You know, when we see Jesus, we see the Father. And so as we grow in our relationship with Jesus and as we grow in our knowledge of who he is, I think we're going to see our hearts melt toward the world in a way that we want to reach out and and connect those people to the love of Christ just as we have been connected to the love of Christ. So just uh, just make it your prayer that, Lord, I want to grow in your grace. I want to grow in, in the knowledge of who you are. And I guarantee you that's a prayer he will answer. And you will see that being answered in time. Very helpful. All right. We appreciate your call tonight, Lee. I guess part of this, too, is, is, is the ongoing struggle that we have with the flesh, Bob. Um, we, we, at a level, because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit, recognize that we are in need of, of forgiveness. Uh, we recognize that we have sinned and offended a holy and righteous God. And, and yet it's difficult for us sometimes, once having had his grace extended to us, to fully accept that, embrace that, and I guess at certain levels, um, even learn uh, the concept of forgiving ourselves as much as God has forgiven us. I, I got a kick in your book. You make reference, and this I think shows the the level at which mankind struggles with this. That Stanford University here in our backyard actually has something they call the Forgiveness Project. Yes, yes, they do, and, and they're trying to figure out if forgiveness is really an essential part of, of well-being and health and, uh, you know, normal relationships, and they're discovering that that's, that that's the case. Um, but, but they spend a lot of time on this idea of forgiving ourselves. And, and it's interesting when you, when you scour the Word of God, there, there's no place there where God says you need to forgive yourself. What he does say is stand firmly in the forgiveness that I've given you in Christ. And when you recognize that, then you're able to let go of the past. You're able to let go of those things that you've been dragging around in life for years and years and years. So when, when we stand firmly in what Christ has accomplished, that's when we can really forgive ourselves and let go of the past and fully embrace um, the resurrected Christ here and now. Bob, we sure appreciate the time and the book, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace, How Your Christian Life is Really Supposed to Work. The new book, by the way, published by Harvest House and available at Christian bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com and uh, Bob's website, too, Simple Gospel, Simply Grace. Dot com. And there again is Bob Christopher, host of the call-in radio program, Basic Gospel. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and <laughs> save money. Uh, no, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless. A topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. 
others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being. I think it's actually part of being a living. Any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense, is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil, and then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil? You know, when you, when you lay it out like that, you realize, in a way, the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control. And yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare, depend, uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right, and that in many ways is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of mm. His power, 
<laughs> as he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, right. and then later on man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, and this was actually true even in the world where the where the Book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the the gods of Babylon or the you know the religion of Babylon, all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis one is it does not have it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they get into that, and when that sets in motion really history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to, to dominate uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realest form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture, uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, mm -hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, it's certainly it, it, with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle yeah. uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and, and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. Yeah. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. E even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are, are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and, uh, and, and I think that's because in many ways it's the, most, it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and, and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even, even as, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real. 
But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, <laughs> Paul talked about, you know, wow. I, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do what not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we yield to God? Do we yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation. And what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people know God exists. And Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? (laughs) And, And especially if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get what's you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's that's an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power, failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's, there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is, in fact, very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that, too, as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX.